Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A-U-N. American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar? The public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about their future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio. Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks, everyone. Uh, summer is, is, is past the peak here. We're losing some light. Baseball season for our family ended uh, last weekend. Uh, uh, some great games down, down in Indiana down there uh, watching our third son, Andrew, finish up his summer uh, baseball tournament travel. Uh, we were able to see several games this summer. Uh, people were kind of spread out. Not many people were wearing masks. That's so just good, good memories, but it goes by too fast. And it certainly does go by uh, almost a year since uh, Pat Riot was our guest a year ago after Jeffrey Epstein was brought to prison uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, mysteriously passed away or was killed or whatever happened. Uh, he, he had some commentary on that whole situation as far as the role that this syndicate uh, plays in monitoring and getting blackmail uh, 
evidence on uh, people all throughout the world. Jeffrey Epstein had his hands in, in a lot of things as it relates to uh, getting the goods on people that are that are used to blackmail. And uh, we'll find out what Ghislaine Maxwell in her trial, uh, upcoming trial, what, what comes out of that. But um, Pat comes back on tonight to share some additional documentation that fell into his lap uh, just recently as it relates to the syndicate network that is out there that um, relates to uh, the global banking cartel. Um, and uh, pleasure to have you on, Pat. Really appreciate you coming back on. Uh, there, I don't know if the outline and the link to the bit shoot video showed up on the website, uh, but uh, we do have that available if people would like to see the see the link and see this video that Pat refers to uh, in his presentation tonight. We can we can share that after the call at any time. And uh, we're graced tonight with the presence of, of Bob Schultz. Uh, prayers out to Bob and Judy. Uh, uh, he, he's a visitor listening in on, on the show tonight because uh, it does relate to a cause of action that we, the People Foundation, was in uh, many, many years ago. And a lot of the heavy-handedness of, of the court system came down, I think, at about the time that uh, the We, the People Foundation, was addressing a related cause of this issue, the same similar issue that Pat's going to go into tonight. Pat, thanks for coming on. I appreciate uh, we can do a wrap either an hour or more tonight and uh, it'll be an archival show we'll, we'll have the link available for everyone at the end thank you thank you for the opportunity I sincerely appreciate it um, I, I would at the outset like to take a maybe uh, 10 or 20 seconds as a uh, memorial for uh, Herman Cain who died today oh yes and uh, good man really a good man, a stand-up American, and a terrible loss. And a little bit of silence, if you might. Let me, let me start off by saying I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, Bob Schultz is here. Uh, I've, spoke, I've spoken to Bob, I guess, recently and alerted him to uh, my being here this evening. Uh, I have been on this, this quest for a long time, and Bob was one of the instrumental people in getting me interested in this subject matter. In fact, uh, I would say Bob carried a lot of weight towards you know, making me so determined to dig and dig and not give up. And I, I don't claim any uh, uh, great talent, but the, the nature of my research was based on different parameters than anyone I have seen in the marketplace uh, trying to expose these circumstances. Um, I have two things I'll, I'll, I'll start off with that are not directly related to the, the uh, subject matter. The first is conspiracy theories. We all know it's been a, a title used over the recent 20 years, and uh, one was most notable, came out of Hollywood with Mel Gibson, I forget the name of the movie, but it essentially conditioned all of America into using the term conspiracy theories. The fact 
of the matter is facts also are behind conspiracies. And as conditioned as we have become, conspiracy facts drive an awful lot of what takes place in our nation day to day. And we have no sense of it. It takes me back to an expression I recently heard. It's more difficult to convince somebody they're being fooled than it is to actually fool them. And this probably is one of those subject matters that stands that test, unfortunately, too well. Tell people how badly we have been fooled, they just look at us and say, it's another conspiracy theory, when in fact, it's not. Up until this past three weeks, I was always fighting that. I always knew that no matter how much I tried to vet my information and factually prove it to be what I believed it to be and to what it appeared to be, no matter how much it came to be a fact, I couldn't quite put the documentation together necessary to convince even myself that it was an absolute fact until this past three or four weeks. A number of things happened, almost one, two, and three, uh, starting about the early part of July this year. Before I go further, I want to bring attention to one other thing, the way you start your show off. And the, uh, the speech or the, the, the discussion by whoever it is that does the introduction talks about how important it is for the young people as they come along to continue to reshape but protect the freedoms that are given to a country like ours. And to that note, what I'd also like to add is that our young people have been under siege for the past 60 years, unbeknownst to us. And now, unlike that statement at the early part of the show that it's the young people who we can count on, it's unfortunate the young people are who have been brainwashed that we have to re-educate in their early 20s and later 20s and 30s. The enemy that our nation has has been so effective, so brilliant, so well-planned, so Machiavellian, that no one has seen it for the full measure of danger that it provides to our country. The, the nature of the past 20 years when I became interested in this and first met Bob Schultz um, was based upon the tax system, the income tax system. And I began to dig into it in, I guess it was November of 2003. Something happened. I, uh, I was attached to a case that was in the federal courts. And I said, how could this have ever happened to me? And I said, I swore, I swore, these sons of bitches have bitten into a porcupine and they haven't yet tasted their own blood. I didn't know who I was talking about. At that moment, I believed it might have been the government, the Department of Justice, attorneys, or people who were right there in front of the circumstances. And I never understood then what I came to understand as the years went by. We have an enemy in this nation. We have suffered an unknown coup. The coup has already taken place. One of the questions, one of the areas of discussion that we never hear 
on Fox, who we believe to be a friendly media source. And it is, to a great degree. But beware, it can shift inside of three months, and you'll never sense it's shifted until it's too late. Because the enemy that we have owns all of our media, all of our media, Fox included. Our newspapers, there are rare, rare printed tabloids that are not under the control of these people. So we, we just go along and no one asks the question. We watch this man Trump as he goes and does what he does and in some ways alienates more people than he makes friends, but he makes good decisions. I think he's on the right track. But nobody asks the singular most important question. Had he not gotten elected, disrupted what was going on in our nation for 40 years, the Bush family included, this is not, it kind of, I guess, is a Democrat-Republican thing, but it's not totally. We've had Republican presidents who are on the other side of this fence. But had Hillary Clinton been elected in July of 2020, today, would we be suffering what we're suffering throughout this nation today? Would we have a pandemic that has caused the dilution of our currency to the tune of over five to almost seven and going up to maybe eight or nine trillion dollars in less than seven months. Would that have happened? I would suggest no. She would have been the last person, the last individual to come to power before we were taken over completely and the coup was absolute. The beginnings of this coup was in the late 1800s, the determination to put a central bank into the United States occurred back, I'd say, prior to Lincoln. There was two attempts to form a central bank, the United States, first United States Bank, second United States Bank, both failed on 20-year charters. And I forget the president that was subsequently assassinated after Lincoln, besides Lincoln's assassination. And it allegedly had something to do with the banking. I don't know if it was Andrew Johnson or whoever it was, but my research didn't go to that particular man. But the people who were determined to take our banking system over because there's nothing at all that controls a man and or a company and or a government in a four-letter word, debt. An entity without, who had many, many decades and generations of experience in Europe with princes and kings. It's the Rothschild family. I might just as well put it out there. You all know it's coming. But they had been lending money to princes and kings, and they had been initiating the war on both sides so that they could, in fact, be in charge of the decisions going forward. Meyer Amschel Bauer, who subsequently changed his name to Rothschild, or Redshield, was a, a clerk at the Oppenheim Banking Establishment back in, I guess it was the uh, late 1700s. And he cut his teeth on banking, watched and seen what had happened 
and then wound up taking large sums of money and lending it to various kingdoms. But then he moved forward and started creating the need for the borrowing by, in fact, creating the war. They created wars on both sides, from both sides, and either side. Neither side understood how it came to be. They just thought they were against a belligerent neighbor. They needed money because none of the money necessary to hire soldiers or to pay troops was there. So Mr. Rothschild was there to lend the money. But from the 1700s into the early 1800s, no one really talks too much about Rothschild's actual business. They look at them as bankers. I'm deviating a little bit from my planned discussion, but I think it's probably good to do this right now. They came along for 200 plus years. They created wars. They pull the funding from the vanquished as long as the victor that they were picking would agree to pay the debts of the vanquished. They had agents, they had their five, he had his five sons in five different countries doing the central, what would be called central banking today, but being the lender of choice in those days. And the princes and the kings in those days were really naive. They were so filled with their own self and vanity, they really didn't fully understand they were being set upon. At the end of every battle, at, the, at every, every conflict, one of the rules put down by the lender would be, you're going to be a gracious victor. You're not going to change the borders. And they'd say, why? No, you can't do, you can't change the borders. If we manage to set you up as victorious, you will pay the debt of the vanquished and you will not change the borders. And for the most part, not all of the time, that succeeded. And the reason really was not visible to the prince or the king at the time, but the reason was so that no kingdom would ever gain enough taxpayers so as not to need Rothschild money into the next conflict. Simple business plan, really a simple business plan, a brilliant business plan, and it still works today. The United States is gracious in as much as every time a country is defeated, whether it's Germany or Japan, the borders stay the same, and they emerge as an independent country. God forbid the United States wants to take over parts of Europe or Asia and had grown to the point where we were indomitable. No, we were a powerhouse to be dealt with, and we were one that he could see was coming along. When the United States was formed in 1776 through 1781, when our Constitution and our government first went into action, was first session of our Congress, I think, was around March of 1781. Mr. Rothschild didn't really know if Britain would repress us or if we would be victorious. And he knew one thing, he was going to have a piece of our military. He was going to be able to control the military of the United States one way or the other. So we look at the beginnings of the Federal Reserve, which really began back prior to Lincoln. There were two attempts with the first bank and the second bank of the United States. And please don't hold me to this. 
there's so much of my research that I didn't get into the specifics of with the idea of memorizing dates to the point of and uh, the extent of the existence of something. My memory works around the key points, which is probably 85 to 90 percent of what I'm going to speak about this evening. But we have a reason for the Federal Reserve to have come into existence. And the alleged reason, which was a valid reason, I say alleged almost facetiously, but I do use the word, but the alleged reason was to control the economic pain that occurs in normal market procedures. Market pain is a function of emotions in the markets and the Federal Reserve was originally designed to take care of the obvious. That's the reason that was given to the public. The hidden reason for the Fed's creation, on the other hand, was to control the economic pain, <clears throat> plus to provide foreign control of our nation and its military. Our military was bound to be the largest, most powerful military in the world, and Rothschild saw that back early on as the nation began to form. And he had been manipulating the military of various kingdoms throughout Europe, and he knew that as this country began to establish itself, he had to control that military in one form or another. I had suspicions about how they were doing this over the course of 100, 200 years, and only confirmed it three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, what I had suspected for the past 17 years, actually only about 14 of those 17 years, only three weeks ago, it's now confirmed as factual. And I can stick Rothschild's hands on the formation of the Federal Reserve. Now, I have to give Ed Griffin a great deal of credit because he wrote that book, Jekyll Island, and after meeting Bob Schultz, a number of other people engaged in fighting a real tough battle with a government that has no place to go. A government can't respond to good men like Bob Schultz. It's an impossibility. Our government was crippled over the past hundred years. It was crippled in ways that we can't see. And many people, most people, even in our government, can't see that they're crippled until they're asked the tough questions like a Bob Schultz would ask. But when they find out they can't answer him, the only thing he gets is silence. But this man and his people, his minions, if you will, were up to their tricks and running a business model, a business plan, from well over 200 years ago, which has been perfected beyond our wildest nightmares to today, to the contemporaneous point in time we are. And he was taking our country over from the days that Washington took over as president. From that point forward, the sights were set on this country. We didn't have a chance. In retrospect, if you understood what I understood, uh, understand now, and what hopefully you may be able to go and do your own research before my book does make it to the market because I will put the book out. I've been threatening it for almost seven or eight years and now I have to refine it just a bit. It will be out. Hopefully I will get it out very soon. 
But you can dig into the reference points that I'm going to give you through this lecture. If I can call it a lecture, I, I almost sound vain when I say that. I don't mean to sound, sound like I'm giving a lecture, but I am so uh, caught up in this subject. This country means a lot to me. God damn it, these people will do to us what they've been doing. They've got to stop, and we have to stop them. They have a plan that is absolutely to right now invincible until someone steps up, some group steps up, or some larger than a group steps up and stops them. Because we're finished if we don't. But they set out, Rothschild set out, to take our country over, or at least the use of our military, without us ever knowing it. And that they have done. Let's talk about the methods. Let's talk about the, the way this has all come about. I have a question that went up on, it may not have gone up on your website this evening, who is the Fed's architect? And you already know who I believe it is, and I now know I can prove it was. And Ed Griffin made the statement that it was, or he was, so I'm merely parroting what Ed Griffin has said. I'm not somebody that's discovered something special, other than now I can prove Ed Griffin was 1,000% correct, but I can also put malicious motives, <clears throat> word for word, out of Rothschild's mouth about our Federal Reserve and what he planned to do with our country. I now can take you through the lectures that he gave. Who was the Fed's architect? Rothschild, unequivocally proven going forward tonight. No longer a something that somebody will, or a statement somebody will come back and say, that's a conspiracy theory. No, we can prove it. With what Ed Griffin has done and what I'm going to present to you further along, it's absolutely unequivocally provable. Right. I have here on my notes, I was going to give you a bit of history, Europe, kings, princes, wars, and more wars. I've already done that. And that was what Rothschild was so capable at and did as an alleged banker. Now let me pause for that on that for a moment. We all have great warriors of history. Uh, we had Constantinople, um, Const Constantine rather, Constantinople is a place, Constantine. And, and please bear with me if I screw up on, on a term like that occasionally. I'm not an educated person. I barely got out of high school back in the 1950s. And uh, I almost could brag that I have gotten myself this far along in studying this and understanding it as well without the formal education. It might have served me better. But if we look back in history at the warriors in history, whether it was Shun, Shun, Shun Tzu, Senju, whatever that person's name is, whether it was Attila the Hun, whether it was Constantine, they all had the ability to make spears, arrows, knives, horseshoes, wagon wheels. And if we were to call Rothschild a banker, we should call all of them blacksmiths. Those were tools of war. They had the ability to create them from nothing. They did a wonderful job because they really excelled on the battlefield. Rothschild is not a banker. Rothschild uses banking strictly as a tool of war by the debt that can be created or 
the control he can have over regions and people, people in regions of the world, because of his ability to lend. And that doesn't mean it comes from the Rothschild name. It can come from other companies, other entities that he has control over. Now, Rothschild had this interest when he saw the 13 colonies beginning to rebel. He was there in London. He was a financier at that time to the King of England, the English crown, the British crown. He could see the challenge that was occurring in the 1700s. He could see that there was maybe going to be a war. He was going to maybe try to help out. But in the back of his mind, he also knew something else, and that was this nation, if it succeeded in being independent, would be the most powerful military force in the world. And that's how Rothschild's brain works today and from back then, and you will not find anybody discussing that. His brain thought in terms of power, physical power, without ever having to pick up a bow and arrow or ride a horse or go into battle. He thought of that power strictly under his control because he would lend money to the people who controlled that power. When he looked at this nation and who we were developing, that's what he saw. He saw this incredible military power developing. He was interested in the future ability to use the U.S. military. That was his primary goal. In the United States, prior to Lincoln's first and second failed attempt U.S. bank or failed U.S. banks, and, and I don't know, I have been told that in both those efforts, Rothschild was behind the scenes in the formation of those banks. I don't know if that's true. It wasn't of interest to me in my research. I just moved on. If I didn't think it was appropriate, I moved on in my research over these 17 years. And I tried to focus on those things I could prove and things that were important to prove. But the first and second banks of the United States both failed after 20-year charters. But interestingly, in 1840, actually, we have to go back a few years earlier, and this, by the way, is speculation. It's factual what I'm going to tell you, but the um, the hands-on events is somewhat speculative. In 1837, Rothschild took a clerk from his office in Britain. His name is August Schoenberg. He subsequently renamed himself Belmont. He gentrified his name to get the Jewishness out of it. And it is, in fact, the namesake for Belmont Racetrack in Long Island. August Belmont came here at the age of 24 in 1837 at the behest of Rothschild. Allegedly, and I say allegedly lightly, but allegedly, he was going to Panama to conduct business for the Rothschild banking family. I personally don't believe that for a second. He wound up in New York just about the time we had a market crash, the crash of 1837. And lo and behold, he emerged from that crash in a very wealthy way, very wealthy man. 1837, pay attention to the years. He was 24. 
He became wealthy literally overnight. He was within a few years, he was the chairman of the Democratic Party. <laughs> if that couldn't be a laugh today. But this man was the chairman of the Democratic Party and, and, and possessed political skills beyond your wildest dreams. Other things happened. We began entering a conflict with the South. We had problems relative to the Southerners believing we wanted to get rid of slavery, which Lincoln did. Nobody would really take that first step. In fact, there were, there were laws made to protect the Southern states and their slaves. But something else happened into those 1830s and early 1840s and such. Britain stopped buying our cotton like they used to. The duties on cotton put us out of the cotton business, so all the benefits slaves brought to the southern farmers was all of a sudden at peril. Cotton had a market, however, and it found that market in New England. The New England knitting mills burst on the scene. And they buy all the cotton they could from the slave trading and slave ridden southern states, except they didn't pay very much for it. So the southerners didn't make the money they used to. Go to your history books, try to find that. You'll never find it. But this happened curiously a few years after August Schoenberg came here. And that was before he changed his name to Belmont. Well, the knitting mills bought the cotton, made finished goods, shipped them to Europe, no duties attached, made a profit, and they made the profit that would ordinarily have accrued to the Southerners because of the use of their slave labor. Nowhere will you read about this in the history books, but it only added more fuel and more friction to the uh, distinction between the North and the South, and it began the attempt to break away we were going to be our own country down south. Lincoln was forced into looking for money because now he had to protect his sovereignty for the Union. God forbid they break away and we wind up as the North. We need to be, we need to be the Union, stay the Union. So here we have a business model that had been developed over the previous hundred years in Europe happening in the United States. You have a king, in actuality a president, who has a problem because he hasn't got money to pay his soldiers for a budding war with the South. Now is the war between the North and the South a real war, or is it what Rothschild has become known to be good at? A false flag war, created by people with many, many steps, complex moving parts behind the scenes. I don't know if we can find that out with absolute fact. Some of it's conjecture, some of it's provable, except that it fits a business model, a perfect fit. So Lincoln took his next Supreme Court justice, and I forget the name of the man. He was Secretary of the Treasury at the time. And they went to Wall Street to borrow money, and at 36%, Lincoln said, let's get the hell out of here. This is stupid. And he left. 
And he printed greenbacks. Oh, my God, he printed greenbacks. He printed his own money. And they sat back after a week or two, and they started to distribute it. Everybody was holding holding their breath. And, you know, well, look at, look at this. We, we just bought 6,000 donkeys, and we paid them with greenbacks. He short-circuited Rothschild. He outfoxed him. And to look at Rothschild as an individual and just an entity, without all of this background, you'll never get to understand the nature of the beast. You can't, if you don't get into the brain and psych him out, you'll look at him like history has. He's a banker. Oh, no, he's not a banker. He's a warrior. Using banking strictly as a tool. So the greenbacks were printed, the war went forward, and Lincoln won. And his goal was to keep the union together. Now, there are stories when you get into this research that said Lincoln was a, um, a conspirator with Rothschild in those years. I can find nothing that leads me to that conclusion. But I've had people get angry with me, telling me that's what happened, and that Lincoln double-crossed him. And I personally don't give a rat's patootie, because in the end, if Lincoln, Lincoln double-crossed him, I don't care what he thought he was doing or what Rothschild thought he was doing with Lincoln prior to the event of winning the Civil War. The war was over, I think it was, what was it, 1845. We had the 16th Amendment come away. I had the 14th Amendment come up first, which was a, an interesting amendment. It's allegedly not a valid amendment. Utah doesn't recognize it. They've actually taken a formal vote. All the other states do recognize it. But the 14th Amendment got so much stuff in it. It was so contrived. Um, and uh, it just, it's, I can't even get back into it. It's not important for my research to continue on the path that I am to prove how malicious this particular family <coughs> is to humanity. They couldn't care anything about human life. And we have their words on paper to prove that. And I'll get to that in a little while. What we have, we have a civil war. Let me see where we are here, because I made notes. Usually I never make notes, Fred, and I apologize for pausing like this. Um, yep. Oh, I am way back from where I wanted to be. Okay. Civil War, August Schoenberg, he changed his name to Belmont. And Schoenberg, if you look in the, uh, um, I don't know if it's a dictionary, but Jewish names, and by the way, none of what I'm going to be talking about is anti-Semitic. If anything, I hope my discoveries and my writing going forward will contribute to the eradication of anti-Semitism. It's extremely important, very important. It's one of the biggest mistakes people have made on this subject matter down over the years. You're anti-Semitic, you're anti-Semitic. Well, I, I know too many Jews. I've been partners with them, and uh, I'm actually partnering with one right now down in Boca Raton in Florida. Um, they can be the greatest people in the world. I've always had good experience with them. So uh, none of what I'm about to be getting into here is anti-Semitic. But Schoenberg, I believe, and I forget where I saw it, and I didn't make a note of it at the time, 
but I believe you'll find if you look at it, it's spy. It means spy. But I can't swear to that at this point. So we had the Civil War. It was over. And we still don't have a central bank. How about that? We have the nation and the union together. And one of the more interesting things, I, I don't I don't I don't have it on my um, notes, but I'm gonna get into it here anyhow. Russia. Russia turned into an ally. You don't find this in our in our history books. The Tsar sent in the Civil War two fleets. He sent he has a a Baltic and an Asiatic fleet. I guess he sent the Asiatic fleet came into our west coast, and the Baltic fleet came into Chesapeake or down around Virginia. And I'm green on that. I can't swear to it. I do know the two fleets were sent to help assist because we were a target then also of France who was going to take everything west of our Mississippi if the Civil War didn't work out well. And they were going to take, uh, Britain was going to take everything east of the Mississippi. Russia helped stave them off. We owed Russia some money. Russia wanted to get paid for it. We paid them $5 million. And I don't think anybody can find it in our history books, and it's there, right in front of our eyes. It's called Seward's Folly. That's the story behind Seward's Folly. This piece of crap ground that we bought from Russia for $5 million was really a payment to the Tsar for the assistance they gave us in the Civil War in holding off France and Great Britain. We had a lot of help from Russia even back in the Revolutionary War. And today, Russia may very well still be a friend. I don't, I don't toss that up lightly. I have no real inside knowledge. But I don't distrust Russia like certain advisors in our government over the last 10 to 15 years have been telling us how evil they are. I'm not sure that's true. At any rate, into the 1840s and the 1870s. We're now coming forward into the early 1900s and still no central bank. Rothschild has failed. He's failed from the early 1800s straight up for a century, four generations. It takes a mechanic. It takes a regulatory mechanic who's very knowledgeable about banking and he sends him here in 1901. His name is Paul Warburg. Another interesting coincidence, Mr. Warburg. Paul Warburg. I grew up in the 50s. I remember a little orphan Annie in the comics. I remember the parody of Mr. Warburg. He'd make miracles happen. He pulled rabbits out of his hat, but he never had any hair. He was Daddy Warbucks. And he was Daddy Warbucks as a parody in the Orphan Annie comics because he made so much money on war, war, and more war, all war. 
1901, we can document that Mr. Rothschild sent, Maddie, Maddie Rothschild, I believe it was in 1901, sent Paul Warburg here. And the goal was to get the Federal Reserve Act done. Write its regulations. Do it by group, however you have to do it. But get it done. I'm tired of this bullshit. I want a central bank in the United States. Go do it. In 1901, Paul Warburg got here, spoke a little English, articulate enough to make his meaning, and a brilliant tactician. Low profile, low spoken, very easy, but a brilliant tactician. And they put it all together from 1901 to 1910 when we pick up in Griffin's book on Jekyll Island in 1910. That's what I. That's how I got interested. Was the the Jekyll Island meeting in 1910? All of what I've given you up till now is research that took me, that forensically took me back all the way back. I, I had I spent eight months researching uh, one word, the word Jew, which took me all the way back to Jesus Christ at the time of and prior to the crucifixion, from the time of his birth. It took me eight months to get there, and I, I really haven't got that planned into tonight's discussion. Maybe I'll touch on it. But Daddy Warbucks, whose in real name, whose real name was Paul Warburg, pulled together a meeting with that that idiot senator guy. Um, who was the namesake of Rockefeller's uh, marriage, his uh, daughter's marriage? Oh God. Um, from up in Rhode Island. He was the president of the Senate. He was the king. He was a kingmaker in the late 1800s. And um, he was the one that got the rail car together and they got everybody together to go down to Jekyll Island. Uh, and I can't remember the name. I'm sitting here saying, oh, Christ, I am getting too old. Oh, it'll come. It'll come later. But they had their meeting. It's on the wall. You can go to the mansion down there. I have been to the mansion just for the sake of being able to say I've been there. I didn't learn anything there. And they had their meetings, and they essentially wrote out, Paul Warburg laid out the baseline regulations for what would ultimately become Nelson Aldrich. There he is. Nelson Aldrich, which was a, uh, a namesake given to one of the Rock Rockefeller kids. Aldrich Rockefeller, I think. And Paul Warburg made the contribution to those regulations that are in the Federal Reserve System Act, as signed on December 23, 1913, by a black male, Woodrow Wilson. Now, we start to touch larger subjects here with the word blackmail. For me to talk about that up until this past three weeks, it was always speculation. I knew it was being done because I believed I was reading Rothschild's words, which I'm going to tell you about in a little while. But I couldn't put Rothschild out those words. I just knew they were his words. And three weeks ago, it's all come together. And I think uh, Fred will have, Fred and Steve and Dee, Dee will have it up on their website. If not tonight, it'll be up there tomorrow for everybody who knows. It is a stinky, lousy, three-minute video with a wonderful man in Morocco by the name of Jacob Cohen, and he gives the whole story away in three minutes and 13 seconds. 
And when I saw that three weeks ago, I looked at it and I, I slumped down in my chair and almost cried. Nelson Aldrich put this group together. They took them all out to Jekyll Island and Paul Warburg wrote most of the regulations, key regulations. And as we say today with software, there's a virus someplace in my operating system, a virus someplace in my email, there's a virus someplace in my computer. Paul Warburg put a virus into the regulations for the Federal Reserve Act. Now let's stop for a minute. All of these things that I'm talking about is done by an army in civilian clothes. There's nobody in a military outfit, nobody carrying a gun, nobody carrying a weapon, except their brains. These are brilliant people. They have to change law to get things done. Listen carefully, Bob Schultz. And in changing these laws, they would provide opportunity for future changes in decisions and future changes in other decisions. And the right to redress disappears because these laws, as they're changed and we take things for granted, when we get into government and we do these things to the people and we look back and say, holy Christmas, we're not supposed to be done. Well, wait a minute. We're, this is what the, how the law, how that law, that law was done 35, 62 years ago. What child had a minion of lawyers working behind the scenes within our government. As an infantry, as a Navy, today we could say airborne or air force, except they're not called that. They're called a commission of the press, commission of law. They break that down by constitutional law. They break that down by statutory law. And when they need something changed, they change it. Oh, wait a minute, we can't do that. There's a judge right now over in the third appellate court and he's making a decision and it's gonna go again. No, 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 wait a minute, let's go back in our database. Who is that, Judge uh, Albertulli? Oh, Judge Albertulli, let's see, he was in Yale back in 1974. Oh no, we've got photographs. Get, uh, get Irving and put a package together and have Irving get an appointment to see uh, Judge Albertulli and, and request him very nicely to make sure this vote goes our way. Our country has been blackmailed. Every single decision that they could make a decision in their favor was done by way of blackmail. Their people have been in our Yale and our Harvards, our Princetons, they've been in our schools. They watch the promising talent come along. And once they're noted in sophomore year and higher, they're set up. Whether they're in bed sleeping with a cocker spaniel or with the girl in the room next door or with the boy that they're in the bedroom with, they're set up. It's cataloged. It's a huge database. And a huge database. We haven't had an independent court making a decision in 70 years, maybe more. Anybody that expects our Constitution to be viewed by people in our government to still be alive, pardon me, somebody just turned the television on, I'm going to turn it off.
My apologies. My apologies. No problem. We can well, still hear you. Okay, that's good. All that training. And one of the best things I ever learned, you know, when I, I came out of the service, I went to work for MetLife. And I had two weeks of training down on 23rd Street. And I remember coming in one day, and I was picked out to play a part. And he said, now, here's the thing. You've got to pay attention. You're going to sit at the table with Ma and Pa Kettle. And they're going to be in the kitchen at a four-mica table bounded with a chrome edge, if you remember those tables. And you're going to get in a discussion. They're going to tell you about their granddaughter and how they went to Lake George. And they're going to digress. You're going to be trying to sell a whole life policy. And they're going to take you to Lake George for 35 minutes. And you're going to sit there. You're going to nod your head up and down and smile and tailor your approach to their need. And he says, the successful salespeople will pick up right where they left off 35 minutes after the story is over. So now I'm trying to, my best to figure out where I was <laughs> in this thing before I got up to turn off the TV. Blackmail, I think it was. Fred, I'm going to ask you to chime in just for a quick yes or no here. You saw this three-minute video today or the other day, correct? Yeah, I saw it yesterday, and I reviewed it again today. Yep. Does it qualify as pretty much what I am getting at right now? Yeah, yeah. Thousands, thousands in this country, thousands of spies. They're not even paid. They work tribally. And they're organized by industry, the financial industry, lawyers in the legal industry, any industry they could have merit and potential to twist things in favor. The Rothschild apparatus and the Rothschild goals, there are thousands of agents working every day in the United States while they're doing their ordinary work. You could be talking about a cab driver. You might be talking about somebody who's a very wealthy individual, but they're working all of the time, allegedly for their own benefit, Unfortunately, their own benefit is to the detriment of our nation. So, let's go back to Paul Warburg. He was here. He did the regulations, planted a, a virus in it. And someone's going to have to bring me back to that term because I don't want to talk about the virus right now. The virus is here. It's more prevalent in our country today after this uh, past five months than probably ever in the history of the country. So Paul Warburg did his deal in 1910 and in 1913. Ooh, wait a minute. 1913 is when the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law. But wait a minute. These guys plan really well. The meeting on Jekyll Island took place in 1910. President Taft was our president then. Taft didn't like a central bank. We'll wait till the next election. Well, wait a minute, Taft is going to run again. He's a popular man. If he gets elected again, we've got to wait another four years. We'll fix that. What do you mean we'll fix that? We'll run a third candidate. How do you mean you run a third candidate? Let's get Teddy Roosevelt. We'll set him up as a third party candidate under the Progressive Party. That'll siphon votes off of Taft. 
and Woodrow Wilson will be our man. So they sat and they thought about that for a little while, and they said, that's a great idea. Well, it's even better than a great idea. Wilson was president of Princeton University. He was stumping, if everybody around knows what stumping means. He was stumping a colleague's wife. A man of great prestige and great character and great reputation, but he was still screwing around with a colleague's wife. Worse than that, this brilliant man was writing love letters to her. What a fool. By the way, look at it in your history books. You're not going to find this. But he did this, and it did happen. For stumping away, Wilson leaves Princeton, gets drafted to be the candidate for the Democrat Party, or the Democratic Party. We shouldn't slight them by saying Democrat Party. He gets elected. Wow. He's not in the White House two weeks. Samuel Untermeyer, a famous lawyer from up in Westchester, New York, a Zionist on steroids, comes back from Europe after doing a radio show against Hitler, rightfully so, gets an audience with Mr. Wilson. So he gets in there to see him. He says, what do you, we got a problem. And Woodrow says, well, what do you mean we got a problem? He says, we got a problem. He says, I, I, have, I have a collection of letters here uh, from a woman that I think you knew a year or so ago over at Princeton. And uh, her son is in some trouble. He's in banks. He's in a bank someplace. And I think he took uh, a fair amount of money. And she needs $40,000. This is 1912, 1913, actually, I guess. Because he would have been in uh, office in January of 1913. And Wilson is sitting there listening to this. And he says, oh, my God. And he's looking at the letters he had written, which they had managed to get their hands on. And Wilson says, the magic words. He says, how am I going to get $40,000? And Sammy Untermeyer says, don't worry about that. I'll see to it that we get the 40 grand put up for you. What they just did then was to buy Wilson's signature on the Federal Reserve Act on December 23rd, that same year in 13. So more blackmail. And by the way, that was when it was unsophisticated. Today, blackmail by these people is so freaking sophisticated, you cannot believe it. It would be impossible to tell you. I have a vision of it. I'll give you my vision. I can't prove what I'm going to tell you. But these people have got budgets that you cannot believe also. Money is never a question. They can take an entire hotel and they can put four rooms, five rooms, and they can have the whole floor being a studio for Samuel, uh, Samuel B. Mayer. And only one room in that hotel is a real room. But the whole hall is all looking like hotel rooms. But when you go into the hotel and they give you room 13707, you go up to 1307, you have no idea. There's 15 cameras and a cast of probably 35 people working behind the scenes to make sure everything in that room is cataloged, photographed, audio, and put in a box until it's needed to get your vote. Our nation has been suffering this sophisticated form of blackmail for well over 50 years. This isn't something that's just happened because technology is now booming like it is. 
This has been going on for a long time. Technology's improved over the past 50 years. None of our people in government are uncompromised. None of them. That's my beginning thought. I have no doubt there are many that have made it into government that are perfectly fine and free and clear of this. But I would also suggest the majority it's not the case. When votes come to the edge, come to the I need a vote, and it goes in a certain direction, I can be pretty sure it was blackmail that did it. Whether it was Antonin Scalia, who I don't believe did capitulate, John Roberts did, and I'm thinking right now of same-sex marriage. That would have gone against the grain of John Roberts terribly so, as it did with Antonin Scalia. I'm, I'm speculating. I'm speculating because I know that I have the knowledge and the proof of what I've just given you, but I think they probably tried Antonin Scalia as well, and he said, go to hell, and he voted against it. And they had a fear that he might sacrifice his life and reputation by coming forward. That's what I believe happened to Mr. Scalia, to Judge Scalia. But that's a digression, and that's a speculative digression. And when you see the evidence, you can understand why I feel as strongly about that. And I'm going to ask you again, Fred, is that three-minute evidence pretty convincing? Yeah, it doesn't leave too much room for doubt. Uh, we've all talked about that, that theory, you could call it a conspiracy of, of, of intelligent networks organized uh, and infiltrating every facet of our of our world. Yep. And uh, it was a it was a pretty stark admission of that. Yes. So what we have is we're up into Wilson's time of signing that Federal Reserve Act in December of 13. I'm going to take it back six years, 16 years to 1897. This organization was developing. It came out of Russia. And I'll try to touch on that in a more direct way further down this road. But it came out of Russia. The Russian Revolution failed in 1905 and succeeded in 1917. But in 1897, a group of men got together in Basel, Switzerland, many of them from Russia, many of them from all over the world, about 300, 300, 400 men. And in Basel, Switzerland, in August of 1897, we had what's known as the First World Zionist Congress. Not an unusual term. We've heard it before. We, we, we've heard talks about Zionism and Zionists, and they wanted a homeland for the Jews, for Jews. Interesting thing, though, um, all of these people, no matter where they came from, whether they came from countries in South America, the United States, Europe, or Russia, or Germany, they were all Russian. They were all Russian. Because when we look to see if the Jews today are related to the Hebrews of antiquity, we can't find the relationship. They're not the same blood. Contrary to anybody that's done research, done blood tests, done ancestry, 
they're not the same people. Come back to that. One of the more magnificent, magnificent frauds in the history of mankind. But in 1897, a group of three or 400 men, I don't know if there were women there, got together for the sole purpose, allegedly, to find a way to take Palestine away from the inhabitants, the indigenous inhabitants, and make it a home for the Jewish people. That was what we were told. Well, there's a couple things going on when we take a look at this. We've stepped back. We, you know, the Jews are, I, I, I said before, I, I, love, I love the Jews. I have to take the word the out of it now. And I have to tell you nothing I'm saying is anti-Semitic. Nothing. Mean it. And I can prove that, too. There is no such thing as the Jews. There are Jewish people. Nope. There are Jews. They're not a people. I'll get into that. I will touch that for you. I'll prove it for you. I won't touch it. I'll prove it. So we had a first world. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jews throughout the world are about one quarter of 1% of the entire world population. Why is there a world Zionist Congress? We get two words in there that don't work. The word world means we're going to run the world. No, no, we're just applying it to ourselves. What do you mean yourselves? You're only one quarter. You're less than one quarter of 1% of the entire population of the earth. What in the world are you saying world and using the word Congress for? A world government made up of a tiny, minuscule group of people. What the hell are you talking about? Well, I've got to tell you, that's exactly what they're talking about. And they do it so brilliantly out in the open. You, chutzpah, chutzpah has such great meaning. I love the word chutzpah. They do it in front of us all day long. And we had the World Zionist Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. 1897. Basel, Switzerland. 1897. Think about this. Well, why? Well, who cares? What's, what, what are you talking about? Basel, Switzerland. That's the, uh, the Bank of International Settlements. It was formed in 1930. Take care of reparations after World War I, which was predicted. Oh, it wasn't predicted at the first World Zionist Congress. It was threatened. It was spoken about like it was real and going to happen at the first World Zionist Congress in 1897. 16, 17 years before it happened. It happened in 1914, if my memory is correct on that. That's 17 years before it happened. They spoke about the coming world war in 1897. Max Nordau. Allegedly, Rothschild never attended because he swore there would be too many disagreements. The people coming from all over the place, all over the world, would never agree. They had 24 lectures. Now, here's where it gets a little funny because there's no flies on the wall. I can't tell you I have a video of any of this. They had 24 lectures. These lectures fell in my hand in 2003, 2002 and 3. 
And they were not called lectures at that time. They were called the protocols. Oh, don't say that word. That's a heinous anti-Semitic document. That's world known. It's anti-Semitic. It's disgusting. Well, you know what? They call it a forgery. It's a forgery. It's an anti-Semitic document, and it's a forgery. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You're getting too far ahead of me here. Nobody put their name in this as an author. How in the world can it be a forgery if no one has authored it? Well, the 24 lectures talk about a brilliant plan to secretly take over the world. Oh, come on, stop that. You can't do that. Oh, yeah, one of them teachers will have thousands of people out blackmailing and spying on people. Oh, that's ridiculous. You'll never do that. Then, the day this was given to me in 2002, three, someplace there, it was a, a butterfly copy. A friend who was a pilot for Eastern Airlines had retired, got a hold of one of these books in Europe on a trip, and he took it and he butterfly copied it on a Xerox machine, maybe in Germany, probably it was in Germany, because his son was living in Germany. I get this, this mm, 60 pages stapled in a corner, and you can see their copy. And it's a 19, very important one I'm gonna tell you guys, 1922 manuscript. No, it's an issued doc, document, it's a copyright. 1922. Why am I so excited about it being 1922? Well, mostly because there are things in there that happened way after 1922 that were threats at the time when the lectures took place in 1897. And even then, at that time when I saw that, I was, I was shook up. And as I looked at it, I didn't think in terms of it being, this is proof. This is proof. And it's taken me oh, 15, 14, 15 more years now until three weeks ago that I feel comfortable saying, I know what this document is. And I know this document was put together by one member or maybe many members in the Rothschild family from 1897 and prior. These protocols were lectures, and it was short. They were anywhere from a full page to maybe two and a half, three pages. But it opened up the page to the 21st protocol. And I was in my third reading of Ed Griffin's Creature from Jekyll Island. And I now know, didn't know at that time, the Federal Reserve is privately owned. It shouldn't be privately owned. Constitution doesn't allow, doesn't authorize the government to charter a private bank, much less a privately owned central bank. Doesn't do that, doesn't allow it. Doesn't authorize it, it doesn't authorize it, it doesn't allow it, period. It's unconstitutional. You can jump up and down the screen, this happened, that happened, all that's bull crap. It's unconstitutional. But to say that there were malicious reasons for it being formed, that starts to get to the conspiracy theory part of it until I tell you what I'm going to tell you. I want you to put that inside of your brain for a little while. I'm sitting there, standing there really, 
and I've got this 21st protocol open, and I've read down to the beginning of the middle of the third paragraph. It's a page and a half long, the whole thing. Third paragraph is probably the top of the first page. Put that on the side of your brain. I was a contractor in the World Trade Center back in the 1960s forward. An interiors contractor. I watched my clients move from other parts of downtown into the Trade Center. I was working on those plans with architects before the holes were dug in the ground. One of my clients was Solomon Brothers. Yeah, it was a good. It was a good gig. I got six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars worth of furnishings every time I took them to High Point. That was probably three. No, it was more. It was probably like four times. It might have been five, but I think it was at least four. Anyhow, I'll never forget my first trip. We're sitting in some shit-kicking little place eating barbecue, which was fantastic barbecue. Best North Carolina barbecue is the best there is in the country. And I stupidly, ordinarily people would say I was stupid, and I didn't think I was stupid, but I earned 7% commission on everything I sold. When we got big orders, the negotiations would take me down to 2 or 3% because nobody wanted to pay those points out. They wanted to keep in the company coffers. I just took a bite out of my barbecue, and I said, Tony, I, and I think his name was Tony. I really don't remember at this point. This is going back into the, oh, God, it had to be late 70s, late 70s, early 80s. I said, Tony, tell me something. Every time I come down here with you guys, you're buying six, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, and you don't negotiate my commission. What does Solomon Brothers do for a living? With two of them there, and uh, a woman. A woman was she worked for one of my distributors. Now, I really wasn't selling it direct to Solomon. I was there selling it to my distributor, who would then subsequently sell it to them. And she looks at me and says. What's the matter with you? What are you doing? You're supposed to be here to make money. You're talking them into taking some of your money. And I could see that in her eyes. But I wasn't smart enough to really understand that I was more curious about why they never negotiated my commissions. And one guy looked at me and looked at his friend and said, you know, if we tell him, we're going to have to kill him. <laughs> and it was a joke, but they kind of meant it. I shrugged it off. On the third trip down, I would asked that question that the other trip and the third trip, I was persistent. That's one thing I have that's a curse and a blessing. It's a curse and a blessing simultaneously. I said the same thing. What do you guys do? How, how do you, what do you do? You're buying all this furniture every trip we take down here. And the one guy says, ah, for Christ's sake, tell the kid. And I, I, was, I was probably 40, someone I'd use of age, 40, yeah, about 40, yeah give or take 38, 40 years of age, and I looked like I was 12. So he takes a bite out of whatever he's biting, he swallows it, and he says, we're the exclusive bidder of Uncle Sam's T-bill debt. Well, you know, that, that went so far over my head, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. I had customers all over Wall Street. There were brokerage firms, banks, Everybody, I knew a little bit about their business, but now T-bill debt and bitter, I, I, well, what's that all mean? I have no idea. And I caught, though, on one word, and I looked at him, I says, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I get an order, if I get a, if I get a call for a chair from one, one chair from a government office in, in New York City, 
I can't get it exclusive. I've got to bid against six or a dozen other competitors. How do you guys get to be an exclusive with the federal government? The other guy came back and said, see, I told you, we'd have to kill him. Well, we all are human beings, and we all know that certain things reside in our brains better than other things, and they stay there. And that stayed there. That stayed in my, my brain. That was late 70s, early 80s. I retired in 96. I have this document thrown to me. Uh, well, I'm getting ahead. I retired in 96, but in 91, I'm down, and I'm taking, I'm taking one of these guys out to lunch to Harry's, which is a great restaurant on New York Stock Exchange, just downstairs in the New York Stock Exchange. And it's about a four, yeah, five or six block walk from Solomon Brothers at that time. The Solomon Brothers was a brand new building. They just built that. And it was built for Michael Milken, originally for Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, but they all went under because Milken went to Camp Fed. He got caught doing things he shouldn't be doing. And they now look for a new buyer or a new charter tenant. So Drexel Burnham wasn't going to go into this building. Solomon Brothers did. It was Building 7 in the World Trade Center. It was on um, Bethy Street. So I'm there with Tony, and we're getting ready to go to lunch, and the whole building goes dead silent. This is 1991, five years before I leave. And I look at him, he looks at me, and silence has a way of making a lot of noise, especially when there's a lot of noise before it goes silent. And I said, what's going on? He says, I don't know. He says, stay here a minute. So he disappeared 10 minutes. He comes back. He says, let's get the hell out of here. So we're walking up to Harry's. I said, what's happened? Well, what happened? He says, I'll tell you when we sit. So I asked again, and he said, John Gutfriend who was a big, big guy on Wall Street, at the time the biggest guy. He was forced out today. He was forced to resign. I said, why? He said, we get caught ringing the bids, the federal T-bills. I said, you did? He says, yeah. That was it. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. If I had thought about the comment made to me down in North Carolina that they were the exclusive bidder of T-Build, which, by the way, they weren't, but they were the virtually the exclusive bidder. There were a few other people. But if you were in Germany or if you were in Japan or any place you wanted to buy $2 billion, $4 billion worth of bonds, T-Build bonds, you'd buy them through Solomon Brothers. You had to go through Solomon Brothers. You couldn't bid them directly to the Fed. You had to buy them through Solomon Brothers. They were the exclusive bidder, virtual exclusive bidder. But here we are in 91, and they get caught rigging the bids. Huge deal, huge. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. The guy got fired, he had to step down. So, okay, as long as you're gonna buy more furniture from me next year, I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm all right with that. I go and I retire, I come down here. This guy throws this Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion across the back of a Cadillac Eldorado, and it lands in my hands, literally, open to the 21st protocol, and it is the architecture of a central bank. Only a page and a half. It's very, very short. It talks about the nature of how T-bills are uh, determined and how they bid them. And when you bid a T-bill, when you bid something like that, you're, you bid it lower and lower until your interest rate is the last interest rate to buy the $2 billion or the $6 billion or $4 billion, whatever it is you're buying. But you bid to the lowest interest rate before you're awarded the, 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 the prize. So I'm reading this third paragraph, and it says, and when we place these, um, I forget the, the language. I didn't put it into my notes here, so I could read it for you. But 
by artificial means, we will have the nation borrow far more money than they originally planned because their safes will now be overflowing. I looked at that for a couple of seconds. I said, wait, 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 is this, is this what I, I think it is? And then I went on and read and it said, we will have this nation borrow more money than they can ever afford to repay without borrowing money just to pay the interest. That's almost a literal translation. And I looked at it and I looked at it. Tony's looking at me. He's the guy that threw it at me. And he said, what's the matter? I says, I, I, I can't tell you. I don't know. I, I've got to. I got to dig in. So here I am. I've, I met I met Ed Griffin. I've got a creature from Jekyll Island in my brain. I'm in my third read of it by then, and I am just given a a shock that I happen to have been in a first person position when Solomon Brothers got caught rigging the bids to the Federal Reserve T bills, and I was furnishing Building Seven in the World Trade Center in New York. So all of a sudden I'm saying, wait a minute, this is just getting too coincidental for me. That's nothing. My life has gone more coincidental than ever possible relative to this research I've been doing. So I'm reading this 21st protocol, and Tony gives it to me. He says, take it home. So I said, okay, fine. So I made copies of it. Now I have it. It's, it's in a different form now. It's very readable. That was a 1922 manuscript, and it was uh, copyrighted in, uh, I think it was Great Britain. The original manuscript was uh, first loaded or down, uh, lo located in 1905 and it was written in Russian by uh, Sergei Nihilus. And uh, then he, he was a reporter for the London Times and he translated into English. He was the first English transition, translation in 1905. Allegedly that book made its way into the British Museum. And I've been to the British Museum, I can't find it, it's not there any longer. But the book is around, you can get it. It's all memorialized back before 1922. In that 21st chapter, it talks about the bankruptcy of the system that generates T-bills. It talks about the depression of 1927 in this 1922 book that is really also available in a 1905 copyrighted edition. Now here we have proof that plans were made to bankrupt the central bank seven to 20 years before it happened. More importantly, here we have a book that brags about a threat to rig the bids to the debt of a nation. It didn't say United States, but it was clearly meant to be any nation that they could get a central bank set up, which Rothschild has been doing throughout the world since the late, actually the mid-1800s. Controlling central banks controls that one thing that controls our hearts and minds, debt. There's no better way to control a mass of people, an individual, any, any way to control them other than owning the debt. If you have their debt, you have them. But they sign on the line voluntarily to borrow the money. And if they're in meaning good faith, uh, when it comes time that they cannot pay it, whether they were forced into being unable to pay because of things you've done, or just by random events, you have them. You have them, you have their family, you have their company, you have their government. 
Most of all, you have their military. <laughs> so we live in a very different world today than we think. Our country is being run by a small, a really small group of people, probably less than a thousand in government. I'm talking about in the offices, not just in our uh, elected officials, because we've only got 553, I think, in Senate and House. But we we have been taken over fully, absolutely fully. There's glimmers of hope that I see, but we are now walking in a we're walking in a path with six trillion dollars worth of diluted currency out here just in the past six months. I have no idea. I mean, I have my suspicions, but I have no idea what this means to us tomorrow or the week later or afterwards. But what I'd like to do is bring you back to the building. I was there when they dug the hole. Larry Silverstein built that building in 19... 1990, give it take 88, 90. He built it for, as I said, Larry Milken, Michael Milken at uh, Drexel, Burnham and Lambert. It was supposed to be uh, Lambert's building, and they went out of business when he went to jail. Michael Milken had already done a big job for the Rothschild operation, and it took a little while for me to dig a little further. And I'm getting off track of my uh, schedule here. Fred, but I'm going, to, I'm going to stay off track here a little bit because I should have put it in. One of the things I found about three years ago is that there was a pattern in the use of debt. And I don't know, I think something on, on National Public Radio woke me up one morning about 6 o'clock and said the two words that just went in my brain and I started to think about it and I, I came out and I began researching it. Performance bonds. Anybody that's been in business, big business, meaning a couple million dollars a year or a couple million dollars worth of a contract, should understand what a performance bond is. It guarantees that the job will be finished according to the specifications. And uh, if you run out of money or something else, the insurance company that you purchase the performance bond through will come in and lay the money out so you can get another contract. It's a simple concept, and it varies by the, uh, the creditworthiness, the experience of a contractor, or the location, it would be more expensive in San Francisco, which is prone to earthquakes, than it would be in New York. Uh, but a performance bond is an interesting concept. It's been around since back in the Roman Empire. I don't think they called it that then, but a performance bond is a very interesting tool. Not quite. It's a weapon. It's a brilliant, brilliant weapon. You have to go back to take a look at the first major performance bond that I track, called the margin account. Margin account happened in the 20s, the roaring 20s. You were earning 1% and 2% a month on your money in the market. It was going sky high. And somewhere in those 20s, and by the way, I don't know who did this. This is something I still have not gotten. It's not important, at least to me, um, because I'm pretty sure about what I'm saying regardless, because I can prove the other part of what I'll tell you in a minute. I don't want to confuse you too much. But I want to find out who invented, more importantly, who created margin account. Well, what is a margin account? Some of you out there may know. Most people really don't know. They may say they know, but they don't. A margin account, first of all, is a bond, and it's a performance bond. Something goes bad. Boom, it blows up. 
the, the margin account was when you were earning one, two, and sometimes three percent a month, and you had a million dollars in your account, and that was before Glass-Steagall, when you couldn't do, uh, when you could, in fact, when your bank was selling you the stock and lending you the money at the same time. It was a perfect storm looking for a place to blow up. Margin account was used to call our, cause our great deception, and I am convinced it was not something that happened by accident. It was planned for a good seven or eight years. These people do plan, by the way, 15, 25 years in advance. They don't do the crime like let's go down the street and hold up a 7-Eleven. They sit down, they do the whole planning for it, and then about 8, 12, 25 years later, they pull the crime. It's done. And it gets perfected all during those years while they're planning and continuing to plan. It gets refined. So the margin account is a performance bond, and somebody would come to you and say, look, you're at a million dollars, and you're making 30 grand a month. Every month you're making 30 grand. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing very well, doing very well. Well, let's just imagine if you had a million and a half. Oh, yeah, that'd be great, but I, I, I don't. I've only got a million. Well, we have a margin account arrangement, and we'll give you 50% of your portfolio as a loan. I, I can't afford to do that. No, that's 1% a year interest. What? You're making two and three every month. You sure as hell can afford that. And by the way, these are real numbers. So the investor who's making a lot of money every month back in the 1920s when $6 was a paycheck for the week, <laughs> $20 a paycheck for the week was big, big money, they were making $10,000, $20,000 a month. That was the roaring 20s. So the banker would tell his client, yes, we'll give you, you have a million dollars in stock out there right now, we'll give you another half million in cash to invest any way you like, 1% a year. Not a big deal. Well, it didn't take more nanoseconds to have an investor say, I'll do that. Well, there's one thing. I knew there was a catch. Yeah, there is kind of. Your ratio has always got to be 50% of your portfolio, or in this case, a third, because if you've got a million, you're going to borrow half a million. That's a third of your portfolio. Well, that's no big deal. I'm making a lot of money every month. Yeah, I know, but you know, it could go bad. You could wind up going down. Well, what, what, what happens then? Well, you'll have to sell off some of your stocks so that you maintain the same leverage. Oh, that's no big deal. Well, there's something else here. What's that? Um, if we can't find out from you within two hours what stocks you want to sell, you're going to give us the arbitrary right to sell off your stock as we see fit. Well, the investor thinks about that a little while. He says, no, I can get that. I'm going to be on the phone with you. I'll tell you what to sell. Okay, sign right here. So they signed like crazy in the 1920s for those margin accounts. In the 1927-28, when that thing happened on that Black Tuesday or whatever day it was, we all know the history. People jumped out of windows and Wall Street was a mess within 24 hours. That margin account was a performance bond and it was planned from 1897 because it's in Rothschild's 21st lecture about how the whole thing is going to come to a collapse. Doesn't say margin accounts, doesn't say performance bonds, just says we will have them over a barrel so that they won't know which way to go. The language is pretty, pretty cruel, pretty brutal. But here we have a document from 1897 that predicts what happened in 1927, 28, and 29. At that point in time, they didn't know Franklin Delano Roosevelt was going to be in their, in their hands, in the palm of their hands. 
but the performance bond that I believe they created did what it did. That's some speculation, probably a little bit and 90% or more. It's fact. We all know it was there. And then I can point you to an 1897 manuscript where they brag about it. But there's more here. Anybody that knows the Kennedy family knows that Joe Kennedy was going to have his son, Joe, put in as president. He wanted his boy as president. Well, why in the world would he have done that? Why would he have done that? Jeez, I, I worked on that for literally, my back of my brain worked on that for months back maybe 12 years ago, 10 years ago. Well, Joe Kennedy was the first SEC chairman to come to New York City and oversee what was going on down there in 1932. Just at the tail end of the Great Depression. I call it the Great Deception. Brilliant Deception. Joe Kennedy came in, he spent the year, went back to Roosevelt and he says, look, you got to do me a favor. I want to be the ambassador of Great Britain. Bingo. Within two years of taking the SEC chair, he goes to Great Britain. Guess who's in London? Guess where the scuttlebutt of what may have taken place in the United States as well as throughout the whole world? Guess where that scuttlebutt would be the deepest and plainest? It would be in England. The Rothschilds, family, and headquarters, and all of their planning takes place. Did Joe Kennedy hear what was going on? Did, did, uh, did, um, did um, Joe Kennedy hear it here and want to go to Britain? Did he want to go to Britain out of coincidence? Did it all happen by coincidence? Did he find out at all? Well, you know, I don't know. I just know that from that point forward, he wanted his son to be president of this country. And then it gets to be the earmarks. Or I should say the big earmark. When the son dies in the war, but Jack is the next candidate, and he winds up as president. In November of 1962, Jack puts an executive order out. It was the beginning of the end of the Federal Reserve. It, wasn't, it didn't kill the Federal Reserve then, but it was the beginning. It was Executive Order 11101, and it put $4.4 billion worth of currency into our marketplace. Funny thing about that currency didn't say Federal Reserve on it, it said United States notes. It was internal currency. Something that most people don't understand about federal debt. Federal debt is internal and external. A nation's debt, any nation is internal and external. How much you owe outside your borders, how much you owe to your own people, whether it's in welfare payments, it's in Medicare payments, etc. That was in June of 1962, I think it was 62, Kennedy was killed, am I right? November? Five months later, 63, 63, 63. Then it was 60, then it was June of 63. I can't remember all of it, guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was June of 63 that Kennedy issued that executive order. Right? People, people tell me, oh, it did just the opposite to the Federal Reserve. It put more power into the hands of the Federal Reserve. Well, you know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But from my perspective, and anybody I talk to with common sense says, those are U.S. notes that took power away from the Fed. And it, it, it appears to be the first step, because there were at least, I would suggest, two, two or three more steps, and he would have crippled the Fed. The Fed would have been gone. 
they would have had a different monetary system from 1964 or 65 forward. So here we have a connection between the World Zionist Congress of 1897 and Building 7 and 9-11. Well, wait a minute, why would it be connected to Building 7? Well, they were rigging the bids. Collapsed. Nothing hit the building. Why would the building go down? Because it was one of the reasons for 9-11. It wasn't one of the results. And 9-11 started the ball rolling for another performance bond failure. Called the subprime mortgage-backed security. Subprime mortgage being a new kind of mortgage created by Michael Milken. Before he went to jail for other bond related problems. We have so much tied up in 9 11. It's directly connected to the Federal Reserve, and it doesn't seem like that maybe with what I'm giving you because all of this is verbal. When you look at it on paper, you shake your head and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, these dates, these people, these things, these events, these bonds. Yeah, they're all together, they're all connected. Now, in the 10th protocol, and I'll, I'll try to do this word for word. I don't have it open in front of me, but the 10th protocol, at the end, in the last paragraph, Mr. Rothschild says, there may come a time that we'll be close to being discovered. And if that happens, we'll distract them. With torture, and these are word for word, with torture, with starvation, we will inoculate them with diseases. Does that resonate at all? Oh, it can't mean anything to the pandemic that we're in. Oh, no, of course not. Of course not. Not until we step back a little bit and see who was arrested at JFK on January 28th this year. Charles Lieber. good old boy Zionist, an Israeli citizen. Why was he arrested? Well, you know, he heads the biology chair at Harvard for the past 13 years, and the government's given him over $15 million, and Harvard pays him a lot. And one of the requirements was he had to divulge if he was ever working for a foreign power. And we arrested him because he was just coming back from Wuhan, China. He's been working in a Wuhan virus lab for the past six years. They pay him $50,000 a month. Oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait this is too much. <coughs> You're making this up. This isn't true. Yeah, this is true. He was arrested by the Department of Justice on the 28th of January at JFK. He's out right now on bail. Not bad imagery. He's going to have to defend a case that will easily be defended until he gets slapped on a wrist. He's, he's currently off duty from Harvard, so he's not making any money, although he's been making 50 grand a month from just the Chinese in the last seven years, six years, whatever it is, not to mention his paycheck from Harvard. But oh, wait, let's, let's take another look at this. Rothschild has a history of taking two opposing forces and getting them to. Something's happening in the background here, guys. Can you hear it? 
You've got the makings. We don't have a, a fly on the wall to watch Mr. Lieber, the Israeli citizen. Mr. Lieberman with the man taken off the back of him. Um, Mr. Lieber was in a great spot in order to seed the virus in China. Am I letting the Chinese off the hook? Hell no. Those people are snakes. It's the Communist Party, not the Chinese people, of course. But we have a connection to Rothschild in Mr. Lieber, and we have a connection to COVID-19 in Mr. Lieber as having worked directly in the Wuhan virus laboratory in the past five to seven years, however long it is. And he had free run of Wuhan. He could have very easily put that virus into play over there and then hightailed it out at the end of January, just at the time it was beginning to show up. And on the 31st of January, guess what else happened? On the 31st of January, Mr. Trump shuts down travel to China. Incidentally, three days after Mr. Lieber comes in. Now I'm incriminating a guy I want to see be president the next time. I can't incriminate him because I don't know if he was, in fact, caught up to date. So how much of a president's activities are governed by other people telling them what to do? I mean, there's just so many things they do on their own. And then there's other things that people come to and tell them things, and they know he's going to have to make a decision to do what they tell him to do because he doesn't know the whole story. Trump's a little different. He really wants to know more of it. We live in a world today that's significantly different than what we believe it is. Our T-bills were being rigged for 30, 40, 50 years, however long it was from the time Solomon Brothers took it over. Solomon Brothers came to this country and didn't come here in 1910, but they were formed in 1910. They were formed three years before the Federal Reserve went into business. It's like setting up a supply line from my perspective. And there's a nice story that surrounds Billy Solomon and how he got John Gutfriend in, et cetera, et cetera, and how they all were chummy. But they all go back. They go back, family-wise. So we're sitting here right now talking about a subject that I happen to find horrible, and I can't get it out of my mind. And everything really comes from the Federal Reserve. No, it does not come from the Federal Reserve. It comes from the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which had been renamed. Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion are now called the Rothschild Protocols of War. Now, I cannot tell you to do this. I can only say, do it. Get yourself a copy. Ignore all of the complaints that it's anti-Semitic and you should be shot even if you think about getting a copy of it. Get a copy of it. Read it. It's a little stilted in its language of the time in the late 1800s. Get a copy of it. There's one, there's one section dedicated to taking over our media. Fred has the information on how our media and our cultural industry making, culture making industry, our movie uh, theaters are all run by Israeli citizens. I try to stay away from the word Jews because this could get to be anti-Semitic. And let me see if I can kill that thought right there. 
If we go back to New York State and Appalachia, and Bob Schultz knows Appalachia is up in New York, and that was in 1967, I think it was 67. Maybe it was 57. State police were called because there were 40 or 50 cars, big, black, expensive cars, gathered around a farmhouse, and they were having a meeting. It was the mob. And up until that point, anytime something was going down, it was always the Italians that did it. Italians, Italians, Italians. But once that came out and got established, we now segregated the Italians, the good people, restaurants, lawyers, mechanics, good people, religious people, high-value people. But within their midst, they had a syndicate and a criminal syndicate known as the Cosa Nostra, or if you will, the Mafia, made up of Sicilianos and Italians. But it was a small group. Now, the outside group, the families who were out doing day-to-day work and not part of the mob, did they know about this? A lot of them did. Were they participating? No, they didn't. Unless somebody came to you and said, I've got a job for you. Like the three-minute video that Fred and I have been talking about. I got a job for you. I need for you to watch the people you work with. I want to make sure something doesn't happen, and you've got to protect our interests tribally. Uh, at a point in time, all Italians were viewed as mobsters, which was wrong. And if we take a look at this today, and we take a look at the Jews, anti-Semitism is used as camouflage because all the Jews are not involved. I found that out, thank God I found that out, about four, maybe five years ago. An article written by Winston Churchill in the London Daily Herald in 1920, titled Bolshevism versus Zionism, uses the following term. This sinister confederacy among the Jews. He says it right there in the article. This sinister confederacy among the Jews. And what he was referencing was what was going on in Russia three years after the Russian Revolution had started. And he talked about various personalities that were Jews and how they all worked together. And he brought a distinction between the Bolsheviks, which were, all the Jews were Bolsheviks in Russia for the most part. Very few were not. They were communists. They've always had a bent towards socialism. It doesn't make them bad people, as long as we don't let the socialists or the communists come to pass in the United States. All the Jewish people in Russia are Bolsheviks or communists. It would be a rare person you would find in Russia at the time that was not a Bolshevik or a communist. And Churchill wrote his article, Zionism versus Bolshevism, as a defense of Zionism. There's no defending Zionism. It was a life preserver for Bolsheviks. It was a life preserver for Bolshevism. In case they didn't get Bolshevism to win, they had a back door to get out and abandon. That was in 1920. That was three years after the Balfour Declaration essentially handed over Palestine illegally 
to Maddie Rothschild. I think that was in November of 1917. And then we've had hell in the world ever since. In Palestine, terror, and it was the, the Russian Jews, though, that did bring terror into Palestine. Go back and you read enough about it, and I have books on it now. I've written two books on it. I've never done anything with it. I have them, a lot of notes in them, bad grammar, but cobbled together 27 pages in one, and I think I've got 40-some-odd pages in another. When the Russian Jews first started coming into Russia, or Russia into Palestine, the early turn of the century, before the Balfour Declaration, the Dersturn Gang and the Ergun, which were two terrorist organizations, which are now today the Mossad, which runs this group, this three-minute video will tell you about. But the Dersturn Gang and the Ergun would set out at 5 o'clock in the morning and they would raid a Palestinian village. They'd rape, they'd pillage, they'd murder. But more often, they would just chase them out of town. That was day one of a three-day attack. The second day, they would come in with bulldozers. It's not an exaggeration, by the way. Not an exaggeration. There were so many Jews in, 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 in Israel that will tell you this story. And they have the graphic pictures and the history of it. And they're embarrassed by it. The second day of this third day plan, they would come in with bulldozers and tear down the entire village that the Palestinians were living in. The third day, they'd go into an already corrupted land record office, and the land record office would be destroyed in total so that there was no proof of any prior ownership in them taking that property over and incorporating it into the the Jewish trust, the Jewish land trust. Because there is no private property in Israel. Did you ever know that? All land is owned by the Jewish National Trust. I'm not lying about this. I'm not exaggerating about this. How can you have a democracy when you don't have private property? They brag about Israel being the largest, most successful, friendliest democracy in the Middle East friends to America. They could walk in and take our country over, which they're close to doing anyhow, we'd be dead. We're gone. You've got to read the protocols. The protocols of the learned elders of Zion. You'll see what they have planned for us. You will see unequivocally where they are today, because once you read it and you look around, you'll say, oh, my God, they've already done, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my my God, they've already done that. They've done, oh, my God, they've done that. They talked about same-sex marriage. They talk about that filthy lifestyle and how we will corrupt these people with that lifestyle. They talk about it. It's in the protocols. I think I've run out of steam. I could I could go on for another couple of hours, but hey, I want to. Before you yes. close off here, could you make a few comments about uh, their hatred of Christianity and the ultimate aim? Not just to Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus Christ. If you if you see one video I only saw the other day for the first time, 
there was a rabbi that was caught candidly, and Jesus Christ should be boiled in human shit. That's exactly what he said. And he screamed it for about two or three minutes. And he was motivated to say that because we as Jews know what the Talmud teaches us. The Talmud is not the Torah. The Torah is the Old Testament and the books of religion and so on. The Talmud is a different type of book. And the hatred for Christianity is not palpable. It's just dripping off the book. We know they can't get any place by visually being that way. So what do they do? They deceive. They deceive from morning, noon, and night. And here's where you get to walk a tightrope. All Jews are like this. They can't be. I've known too many of them. Can they be? Can I, am I fooling myself? I don't know. I love some of them dearly. I mean dearly. I mean that sincerely. I'm not being accommodated. I can't believe they all have this hatred of Jesus Christ and Christianity. The video of this, the video of this rabbi in Israel, um, it shook me the other day. And he went on and on. And, and by the way, what he was screaming about was other Jews who were becoming Christians. There is a, uh, a movement in Israel for people, a small movement uh, in Israel to become Christians. Um, and if you look up the records, you'll find 87, almost 90% of the population of Israel are secular. They're, they're, they're not religious at all. They're strictly into the historical end of the religion, but the history of the religion or the alleged religion is a hatred of Christianity. There is an absolute severe hatred of Christianity. You can rape them. You can thieve from them. You can kill them, and there's no punishment. Christians are low, the lowest form of life on the planet. They're no different than a bug you would step on. That's what the Talmud tells them, and they, many do believe it. We live in very interesting times. When we take a look at Adam Schiff, we take a look at um, uh, Jerry Nadler. You take, take, look, look at look at our, our our president. They came in and took took office in January of seventeen, and within a month he had a uh, prosecutor assembled that distracted him for three years plus. Well, who did that? Uh-huh. Who appointed that prosecutor? Rod Rosenstein. Oh boy. Yeah. Rod Rosenstein is a Republican. No, the fix has been in. Hillary was supposed to come because she was going to be the best puppet they would ever have. She knows the Rothschild. She wines and dines with the Rothschild. Um, they really had to distract him. Now, he did these great things for Israel. It doesn't mean a thing. That doesn't mean a thing. If you look up George Soros, you'll find out he's a Jew from Greece originally. He's a brilliant guy. Made his money in currency exchange. Ooh, wait, 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 did you just say currency? Isn't that what Rothschild does? Well, yeah. Did Rothschild help George Soros? I don't know. I wasn't a fly on the wall. But George Soros will brag about not liking Jews and about not liking Israel, which right away to me is a sign. I got, I got Irish blood. And as I joke with people, if you're an Irishman, you ever had a beer at a bar? You're a detective. Whether you like it or you don't, you're, you're a detective. And George Soros just put $17 billion 
in his open source foundations with a black guy running it who is best friends to, uh, who's that schmuck running the city in New York? What's his name again? Uh, de Blasio or Cuomo? Or? Comrade, Comrade de Blasio, who has fought for socialist causes all of his life, and so is this black guy. But George Soros, I'm going to speculate now again, is funding all of what we're watching take place on the streets in some of these states. And we're, we're really, we're not quite, but we're close to, I believe, at a tipping point. Because you have open rebellion on the part of the elected leaders in some cities that are defying American values. They're defying them, straight out defying American values. And we have all of these poor kids that have been indoctrinated in colleges, not just the Ivies, but all of them, because these, these teachers have been appointed and picked for their liberal, we want to call it liberal, it's really, it's, it's borderline communism. And these teachers have been teaching our kids what to think, not how to think. The college is there to teach children how to think, not what to think. Just the opposite has been taking place the last 40 or 50 years. We've been asleep. The youth of this nation could wind up being our biggest enemy, and I hope not, but it could be. And you can go to Catholic, you can go to Catholic colleges. The kids come out of there with a complete lack of common sense. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So we are catching, I feel like I'm talking about this subject and catching this. We're catching it maybe 10 or 15 years too late. I hope not. I worry for my grandchildren. I worry for my children. When we look at, at doing due process or the right to redress, like, like Bob Schultz, who's a great man, uh, you're not going to get it. You ain't going to get it because when they start looking for a way to give it to you and they find out, oh, my God, this law does this, how does this come to be? We are all, by the way, we are all, everyone that's listening to this, whether you've got 12 people out there, you've got 1,200 people, I don't know, every single one of us that has a Social Security number is declared in Title V, Section, Title V, Section, blah, 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 Section, oh boy, what the hell is it? Um, section 522AA13. Title V, Section 522AA13. You take a look at 13 and it says if you get a social security number, you're an employee of the federal government. On that basis, an income tax is collected. Send a congressman to that particular thing and ask him, what does that mean? I'm not, a, I'm not an employee of the government. I, I run a tire shop in, in Memphis, Alabama, Memphis, Tennessee. Why, why is it saying I'm, a, I'm an employee of the federal government? And you, know, you know what that good congressman can say? Well, I'll get back to you. And, and again, I come back to Mr. Schultz and say, they can't answer you, Bob. All of what you want to do is a deeper problem. It's covered and buried and been then all of this has been done to us. That income tax had to be put together so that these people had the money to have a military. That's what the income tax is all about. They needed that money to make sure this country had the single best military around so that when they did come up with Israel, we were here to protect them. One of the, one of the protocols, the title on it is the Guns of America. In 1897, the guns of America. In 1897, wow. we didn't have the money to do what we do. You've got to read these things. 
You got to read them. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating with that. The guns of America will come to protect what our needs are. The guns of America. Natty Rothschild wrote that, and it's in one like hey, probably a page long, page and a half long. Hey Pat, we just uh, just a heads up before we wrap it up. The uh, yep. the link to the video and the basic outline is on our website right now. Everyone, if you want to go there, click on the newsletter tab. It's all there, according to Steve. So yes, it is. It's up. Please share that, watch that. It's a very short video. It provides the context of, of the organization, of the syndicate that is uh, extremely pervasive in, in all walks of life. Uh, and uh, uh, Pat, we hope this book does you know, come out, uh, pamphlet, whatever you want to call it. But uh, no, it's, it's a book. It's gonna, it, it, it is a book. Change. It's a book. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oh, good night, hey, everybody. Um, is is Bob Schultz still online? I'm still here. There he is. <laughs> okay, everyone. Uh, you're going to have hey, Bob hey. back to share some yes, information. Sir. Can't do it tonight, but Bob has some hey. interesting, fascinating information. Sam, you want to go uh, ask a quick question? Yeah, wrap Fred. It up. Fred. Hey, Fred. Yep. Uh, you get that protocol to learn elders of science from the American Free Press. Oh, you can get them off the internet. They're all over the place. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, incidentally, uh, uh, if you want to know about what's going on with the Jews, get real Jew Google real Jew news. Brother Nathaniel Kapter, he's a Jew. He tells you all about what the Jews are up to. I, I know. Real we, Jews. We, I, I do my best to really stay away from the term the, the Jews because there's so many good Jews out there and good people that happen to be Jewish is a better way to say it. Um, well, he's, one of the he's things, exposed them. One of the, one of the things I did leave out, and I should not maybe have left it out, we're, we've issued six to eight, nine trillion dollars in money. Um, Kennedy's first step to uh, solve the crisis of the, that the Fed, would, the Fed would bring on us because what we're facing now is the virus that Paul Warburg planted in it in the original regulations, which are still there, and that is the fact that it's a note. Now, when he did the 13, 1913, when they did the Federal Reserve, we didn't have Federal Reserve notes. We only had those after they induced the default. I can't call it a bankruptcy. We have no history of a bankruptcy in our law, but it was a default. The Depression brought a default, and all the gold was collected, as you know, in the bank holiday. All that gold left the country. We don't have it anymore. Uh, we were given Federal Israel. Reserve notes. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, it might be because yeah, it's I, I, don't, I don't know. It could very well be because Rothschild probably has cornered all of that gold and collects it even today. Um, but the, the, the gold was taken, and now we're issuing notes that are diluting our, our value, the value of these notes that are already out to the point where they're, I mean, we're going to have either inflation beyond our wildest dreams. Kennedy's first step in issuing United States notes was to issue a second currency. The next step, as I believe, this is a belief because no one knows what the next step was. He, he was killed. The next step, I believe, was to use one note, the Federal Reserve notes for external debt and one note for internal debt. Most people don't understand that we have as a nation internal and external debt. Internal debt is that which we owe to ourselves or the country the government owes to us in, uh, in Social Security payments, in Medicare, 
and uh, when we give out uh, food stamps or things like that. And that gets to be a separate type of currency. We should withdraw. We should print up the six or four or seven trillion in a different style note and use the banking system to withdraw the existing Federal Reserve notes and replace it, not maybe, maybe with a United States note, but with a currency that's a different color. And that color cannot be spent anyplace except onshore here in the United States. So if that color, if that six or seven trillion in currency finds its way into Germany, into China, or into places that could cause us a default, guess what? It can't. Because the only place they can demand payment from us is to buy something off our shores. That's, and it's a far more complicated thing. I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it here. But all of a sudden, we'll have two currencies that could look almost the same. There'll be something that tells you for sure it's not. And people will say, well, why would I want that? And there's ways to manage all of that by incentive. But we should have a dual currency, one for internal debt, one for external debt. And uh, our currency could be withdrawn. All the stuff that's being issued now could be brought back and replaced with this through the banking system. So that was the last thing I want to leave tonight and I forgot about. It's probably one of the more important things I would have said. So I'd say good night again, guys. Uh, and, yeah, it's been uh, two so hours. I Thank you, uh, Patrick. And uh, we look forward to uh, uh, keeping in touch with uh, the development of this. Next week, everyone, Deborah Tavares is our special guest. She'll have a lot more to say about the Rothschilds in connection to the COVID virus and other things that are happening financially. And uh, uh, Bob, thank you for joining us tonight. Best to you and Judy. And uh, I know you've been talking to Didi, and we're uh, all, all very interested in, in some of the details of what, what you uh, are, are up to uh, with regard to the right to petition in light of our, our current state of, the, uh, of our country. And, and, and right. we'll definitely have you on if you can. If you want to make a quick comment, before we wrap yeah. it up, uh, feel free. If I, if I could, yeah, thank you, Fred. If I could have 60 seconds. Um, sure. I strongly recommend uh, people get, read the book that uh, Patrick has talked about tonight, uh, G. Edward Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island. But I would also very strongly recommend people get the two-volume work titled Pieces of Eight by Edwin Vieira. And reading from oh, yeah. his uh, Reading from uh, his uh, preface um, uh, for a moment, uh, he, he says he designed pieces of eight to provide to the greatest degree practical a complete self-contained resource for every one of his countrymen concerned with, one, the legal history of America's system of money and banking from colonial days unto the present, two, the legal issues that have surrounded these systems throughout their historical course, and three, the legal solutions, or at least, he says, the legal directions in which Americans should move in order intelligently to address the problems arising from the politically manipulated and thereby economically unsound money and banking that now plague the contemporary United States, and he says, pose grave dangers to this country's economic prosperity, social stability, and political freedom in the not-so-distant future, and he published this two-volume work in 2002. 
finally, I would strongly recommend people go to, and if they could write this uh, website down, givemeliberty.org slash occupy slash default dot htm. And there they will find eight petitions for redress of grievances. The, the first three deal with money and monetary policy, public debt, and the Federal Reserve System. And uh, with great help from Edwin Vieira, these petitions were prepared. Um, so I encourage people to go and see. They, they, they present the factual evidence in support of, of Patrick's argument that there is no constitutional authority to create a debt-based fiat currency and that public debt incurred to pay for unconstitutional activities is by law. The owned Federal Reserve banks have no constitutional authority to create our money, control its supply, or to fix interest rates. So I encourage people to go to givemeliberty.org slash occupy slash default.htm and find the petitions. Um, and uh, we'll get them served when we get <laughs> when we get enough signatures. And therein lies the problem: individuals and small groups. And Patrick knows this: individuals and small groups cannot prevail. It's going to take a critical mass of people acting together, putting a collective foot down to get the relief that we're entitled to. And thank you for this extra time, Fred. Okay, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Patrick. One, and uh, thank you. One, one last thing, Fred. I'm wondering, did Senator Lindsey Graham call in tonight? Is he possibly listening in? Uh, I don't so many, I think so, but there are some unknowns. can't see them, the numbers okay. anymore. Right. <laughs> Just curious. So did, Just curious. We, will have the link, we will have the link to this recording, uh, Patrick, and uh, we'll get that over to you ASAP by email. Or thank email. you much. Thanks. Thanks again, okay. uh, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate everything. Good night. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. God bless. Thank you, Bob, for joining us. And uh, good night, Fred. Everyone. All right. Good night, Dean. Thank you, guys. Good night, Dean. Good night. Thanks for everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Everyone still on? I am. Who, who's this? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.